Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, my regular co-host on this show. And we want to thank everyone who has subscribed to the Beyond Politics podcast. If you're listening on radio, it's real easy. Any podcast platform that you happen to prefer, we're on there and we really appreciate your subscriptions. And we like ratings and reviews. We like five-star ratings and reviews, but, you know, we trust your judgment. I am absolutely beside myself. I am delighted to welcome back one of the most popular guests we've had on this show, Michaeline Kroll. Your appearance last August was sort of a blockbuster for us. It just, it was the episode that just kept growing and growing on Apple Podcasts. And so I knew that we had to get you back. I have been agitating to get you back on this show for a while and we finally pulled it off okay if this is not a household name to you it should be it will be shortly michaeline was the chief of staff to u.s senator bernie sanders for five years she was the senior advisor to the bernie 26 presidential campaign before that she didn't do much in terms of her career only being legislative director for civil rights icon John Lewis for eight years. She also has a very distinguished career outside of being a staffer. She's an attorney. She has a law degree from Boston University School of Law. And she is a very trusted advisor to some of the most august uh, corporations and organizations in America. Michaelina, I'm just, I'm ecstatic to welcome you back to Beyond Politics. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I obviously I'm delighted to have you. Look, we this always happens. If you have a radio show or a podcast or you're just interviewing someone as a member of the media, I guess I'm kind of a member of the media now. It always happens that your interview subject drops something really interesting while you're not actually doing the show. So you and I, right before we got on the air, we're comparing just how long in the tooth we've become. We're 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 a little further progressed in our careers at this point, and that means that you know, we've seen other people progress in their careers. And you dropped this truth bomb on me that your former intern is now a U.S. senator. Who are you talking about? And oh, my goodness, how do you feel about that? My former intern, uh, John Ossoff, who interned for me when I worked for Congressman John Lewis, is, in fact, a United States senator from Georgia. And I feel great about it. And honestly, he was a really committed kid. He absolutely was hardworking, wanted to be a part of what was going on, felt very strongly about what John Lewis was doing. And he was always someone who I could count on to get things done quickly and well and thoroughly. And, you know, all these years later, as he's a United States senator and I'm watching him, especially during the Supreme Court uh, proceedings when we were they were looking at Katanji Brown Jack candidacy, he just has proved himself to be a really thoughtful legislator, and and I see all of the potential from many many years ago just coming to the fore, and and I'm just so proud to see people who were my intern now leading this country. <laughs> you know, it's all right. Yeah. Well, in a congressional office, there are kind of some standard jobs and and the job that's sort of the, the step above intern is staff assistant, usually the young person who is at the front desk. They answer the phones, they greet visitors, they go through the mail. You know, they, they can do a lot of important things in your office, but it's it's sort of the most junior position. The person who was the staff assistant for me in, in an office that I was running in Washington, D.C., was exactly the characterization you just had of John Ossoff. Super on top of it, very, you know, like 
you could just fire and forget it, hand them a task, it would be done and it would be done well. I, I wrote him a recommendation for law school. That was the biggest mistake I ever made because he went on to law school, a distinguished legal career. He is now the deputy commissioner of the NBA. So during COVID, during the bubble, the NBA bubble, the guy who set up, designed and ran that entire thing was Dave Weiss, my former, well, that congressman's former staff assistant. So yes, I'm really questioning my life choices because I've been surpassed. That's okay. That's all right. All right, Paul, we're, we could reminisce forever. You actually Listen, have questions. Yeah, well, you, you young people have nothing to complain about. You two youngsters. Talk oh, about- go on. Yeah, I'll go on. Yeah, I mean, Robeson, of course, has dubbed himself the Silver Fox, but far be it from me to comment on the color of, of his follicles. I mean, you know, when you reach the August stage that I've reached and you guys reminisce about your former staff, I mean, I'm reminiscing about Robeson, my my former chief of staff, who's we're, the good news is we're still working together. So so we digress. Michaelian, I want to talk to you about real things for a moment. Just we'll just take a moment because the Senate actually had a very busy and surprisingly productive six-week run recently. We had SCOTUS, anti-litching, VAWA, postal reform. I'm curious what what stands out to you about what's been a pretty busy and theoretically functional six weeks for the Senate. Yeah, I'll start with the least uh, remarkable pieces. You know, postal reform is something that I think people have been working on for over a decade. And that's an, actually an interesting one that is bipartisan and that threatened to fall apart with the progressives sort of agitating about the, the head of the Postal Service, DeJoy, who is a person DeJoy that people love to, to hate in the progressive side of the the world here. But on, in, honestly, they were able to pull together a uh, bipartisan uh, group of uh, senators and, and members of the House to get postal reform done. So that was actually one of those opportunities to, to look at how, how things do work around here. Anti-lynching, obviously, it's taken 100 years to pass an anti-lynching bill. You would think that that would be something people would come together and be able to do. In 2005, there was a, a shot of getting it done. And one of the Republican senators thought that it was a little too broad for his liking. But, you know, obviously we've come to a point where we're seeing, you know, echoes of history happening where, where people can't go running in their neighborhoods without being uh, tracked down. And so I think it's a really piece of legislation and I, I think it's about time. And, you know, it only took a hundred years to do that one. And obviously the Supreme Court, what a historic moment to, to watch and to have young Young women, especially women of color, seeing somebody who who looks like them, who is just accomplished a person, as you can imagine, being put onto the court. And I think all of us, you know, have, I have a daughter myself, you know, to the, the way that her daughter was looking at her during that hearing is just such a beautiful picture of pride and uh, really gives young women and, and women of color the, the ability to look at that court and, and see someone who looks like them. I think it's it's just historic and it's a huge, huge bounce and a huge win for, for the president who's needed, a, who's needed a win lately. You know, the three of us who are talking here are members of a tiny sliver of the public that really follows everything closely. And yet I would have had a hard time rattling off the list that Paul just rattled off of what the Senate has gotten done. I mean, I think that kind of underscores just how under the radar it is for the American public. You're right. There's a lot and it's not sexy. Postal reform isn't, but it really matters. 
to people's lives. People really like the post office. I'll tell you, you and I have both worked house offices. There's nothing that gets people ginned up faster than don't do anything to the postal service. But it's very easy, by contrast, to talk about all the things that the Senate and the Congress and the Biden administration have not gotten done. You know, the COVID funding, I don't want to call it a debacle, the hiccup, the COVID funding hiccup that we had recently. And of course, the collapse and disintegration of the Build Back Better bill. And that's all you read about. And so obviously, we know the media is super happy to do anything that's that's dramatic and the whole Dems in disarray narrative. That's that's easy to fall into. But the problem is focus groups show and polling shows that voters really buy this. They're reading this stuff. That's what they're imbibing. And so I guess my question for you is, when you look at a productive six-week stretch from the Senate, like we've just seen, does it feel to you like this whole Democrats are ineffective, Democrats can't get anything done, this is, this is all a waste, Biden's not keeping his promises, yada, yada. Is that a media creation largely? Does this, to some extent, amount to a problem of our own making because we messaged poorly or we raised expectations too much? Interestingly, I, I think that we've had a really sensational several years in the media. And when people are not uh, storming our Capitol building or you know tweeting constantly on crazy things that are happening, I think anything, you know, you need to really scrape the bottom of the barrel to find something that's sexy. And if the Democrats are in disarray is what the media has come up with, I guess that's what they've come up with as the the thing that will now, you know, get our attention and, and give us something to talk about. But I actually think that the Democrats have a really hard time bragging. And I think Obama being at the White House the other day, just saying, we have a good story to tell, we got to tell it. It's hard to do that because we're so we're Democrats are so interested in such a variety of things that we're all talking about something different. And we do want to do big things. And we all have big aspirations for what we want this country to accomplish, not the least of which is, you know, what's in Build Back Better, which is prescription drug prices being lowered, childcare being dealt with, you know, a variety of things on clean energy and the environment. I mean, these are big, big issues to deal with and to see them kind of crumbling in a 50-50. Senate is really disappointing for folks. And it's hard to, to you know, get people to focus on what this actually means for people. It's easier to focus on the, um, you know, the horse race and, and who's in power and who's in charge. So, you know, I, I think it's a media issue. I think we probably have raised expectations a little bit too high. And, you know, when you're dealing with passing legislation through the reconciliation process, which is this archaic budget rule that allows the Democrats in power when they control the House, the Senate and the White House to pass legislation without a threat of a filibuster, it's really it's really challenging to do that when you've only got 50 senators. And so each of them means something and each of them has opinions. And it's hard to um, pull things together when you've you know, you've got pandemics and wars and, you know, funding disagreements that are taking up people's time and energy. So, yeah, I think the media is making more of this than than it really is. I do think that it's been a missed opportunity, but I do think there are opportunities to get some things done in the next uh, couple of months. Imagine, just imagine. Now, this does require some imagination. Imagine that Democrats were able to speak with an emotionally resonant message with one voice. I just want you to contemplate that for a moment because it's you have to deny reality in order to get to that place of imagination. But it's such a it's such a fond hope that someday 
Democrats will actually be able to understand some of the fundamentals of messaging as a political entity and, 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 and tell the American people a story that is consistent, cohesive, that strikes to the heart of what Americans want and explain why, look, we have better policy, we're, we're better, we're smarter, and we're, we're better looking also, and, and just be able to reach Americans. But but, but you sound like a wonky John Lennon song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote that. <laughs> I wrote that song. But 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 it's just it's so frustrating sitting outside and also having been inside at meetings where Nancy Pelosi gathered all the new members of Congress, of which I used to be one, and then talked about her messaging which was terrible, okay? It was terrible. She didn't know where to turn to get it. The messaging was awful. Then you see Hillary Clinton running in 2016 with a terrible message. And today, yes, there's a lot going on, but Democrats can't message. But you, however, worked with the family of Martin Luther King to do an event at the King Memorial at the date and time of Dr. King's assassination with the Ukrainian ambassador. And Speaker Pelosi attended, many members of the Congressional Black Caucus attended. There was, there was important discussion about Dr. King's opposition to the Vietnam War and how people of conscience must stand with Ukraine. We didn't read much about this in the media. So tell us, what were you and the King family trying to get across? What was the message that you had in mind? Yeah, so I'm real blessed to work with uh, Martin Luther King III, his wife, Andrea, and their daughter, Yolanda, who everyone should keep their eyes on as a real rising star and a young activist. She is absolutely a gem, and she's somebody to keep your eyes on for the future. But they uh, they wanted to get together, and they do this every year to commemorate the, the assassination of, of Dr. King. And obviously, it's a personal day, and a day that I, I saw Martin get choked up for the first time in a long time, just thinking and talking about it. But I think a lot of people use Dr. King's message when it's convenient to them. And you've heard a lot of people, I would say, sort of take it in vain. They, they use it when it's convenient, but they, they put it back on the shelf until, until the next King Day or the next Black History Month. And I think what they wanted to really do is to demonstrate to people that he was someone who fought for civil rights, but he also, even when it wasn't accepted or convenient or the 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 talking point of the day, he really had an opinion about peace, justice, and equity. And that included talking about war. And he talked about the Vietnam War. In fact, he was killed a year after he first gave his first speech about the war in Vietnam. And so I think what the, the King family was trying to do on that day on, on April 4th was to try to show the world that we really can't be free of these triple evils of of racism and poverty and war without thinking really clearly about how we stand up when it's hard for to do that when it's not popular to do that and you know they they really just wanted to draw attention to that so i think having the ukrainian ambassador there was really powerful to hear her um, reflecting on what's happening right now and and using the words of dr king to really talk about 
you know, how we end violence in this world and, and how we, we care for each other and bring about peace, justice, and equity. So those were the, those were the things that the Kings were trying to accomplish on that day. And, and there, there was a little bit of media coverage, but I think in terms of getting it picked up on a real national level, it's, it's hard to talk about, about peace. No one wants to talk about peace. It's sexier to look at, you know, war images and those sorts of things. So I do wish this was a message that would get out more more broadly, but I, I think that the family really um, has been focused on voting rights and has been focused on other democracy preservation issues, but they felt that it was important, even though that's not where most people wanted to go, is to talk about peace and to talk about Dr. King's ability to stand up even when some of his colleagues thought that it wasn't a great idea for him to speak out on Vietnam. Well, since you invoke voting rights, it is true that our most fundamental right, which is the right to vote, continues to be under massive threat and not to sound overly partisan about this, but it's basically mostly in Republican controlled states. Now, Senator Kirsten Sinema said last week that she is still focused on election protections. And on this show a month ago, the third ranking member of the House Congressman Jim Clyburn made some headlines, including in Politico, when he told us that he was confident that Congress was going to get something done on voting. You have an inside line to what the real discussion is behind the scenes in Congress. Is that realistic? Is is something going to happen in your view? I think it's hard to see something happening right now. As we get closer and closer to the elections, it's much harder to do something on a bipartisan basis, which would be required in order to make these changes. Unless, of course, we talk about changing the filibuster, which several members of the Senate have said that they're not likely to do. So in that case, you know, the comments of cinema, I think, are interesting because when she talks about um, electoral issues, I think what she's talking about is the Electoral Count Act, which is an important piece of legislation, because I think what we saw during the, the last electoral count for the presidential election, there are some places where there could be a serious problem and we could see the questions uh, coming up around the elections of the president of the United States. And we obviously don't want that to happen. So I think it's an important bipartisan discussion that's happening. And, and I do think that there is a chance that we do get that one done this year or <clears throat> next year before the next presidential election. In terms of voting rights and you know reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act, that was something that I worked on with Congressman Lewis and was blessed to work with Senator Kennedy when he was still alive on that reauthorization. You know, that those preclearance requirements that were struck down by the Supreme Court are just so vital to preventing what we see happening right now around the country. And all of these Republican-led legislatures that are really cracking down on the ability of people to continue voting the way that they have been, especially during this pandemic, is really going to be felt in the next election. And, and I, I have a hard time seeing, you know, as much as people would like to see it done, I have a hard time seeing it in an election year actually getting across the finish line. We were, we were just talking about our right to vote and how it's under assault and the prospects for getting something done on that. Over the last four or five months, the discussion has largely been about the failure to advance anything on voter protection or election subversion, which many people, Democrat and Republican agree, is sort of the top priority if we wanna save American democracy. But there's also been a major focus on some of the recalcitrance, to use a $100 word, of certain senators when it comes to the larger Democrats' agenda, the Biden agenda, the Build Back Better bill. The news media has been reporting, as we record this on a Monday, 
the news media has been reporting that the White House is making one last push for a some core elements of the Build Back Better bill, a, a kind of a mansion-friendly, a BBB light. I, they haven't come up with a name for it yet. Fantastic branding. You know, just roll something out. You know, we'll come up with a name later. It's like you're going to you're gonna have a, a big movie premiering. It's like, what's the title? I don't know. I'm not even sure who's starring in it, but we hope you'll show up and, and buy a ticket. So I've got a, I've got a name for it, oh, but I can't say it on radio. Oh, gosh. You know, Senator Sanders, wow, that was really kind of you to show up to see your old friend. By the way, for people who don't know, this is probably giving Mike Lean flashbacks, not only because she worked for five years. For probably Sanders, giving her PTSD. But she also apparently, according to media reports, gave him the business when she stood in for Hillary Clinton in their mock presidential debate prep. And so she's used to hearing from Senator Sanders and giving as good as she gets. All right, back to Build Back Better. So the media is reporting that they're going to go for sort of the mansion version of like repealing the Trump tax cuts, maybe some stuff on climate, although stuff on climate, including like some coal friendly stuff and maybe lowering the cost of prescription drugs. You are super plugged in. What are you hearing? And is the progressive wing of, of the Democratic Party going to go along with a super light version of, of this when they had very ambitious ideas even four or five months ago? So Congressman, you remember when uh, you know the jet fumes would start being able to be smelled on the hill and you know you wanted to get out of town for a congressional recess. That is when deals got cut. So now we're looking at what are the next times when there's going to be some pressure for people to get something actually done. And, and my guess is that right before the August recess will be when there's an attempt to get a new Build Back Better bill out there on the floor and, and voted through. Now, you're exactly right. The scope of this is very, very small. I think Bernie, who was just here on the show with us, was, you know, he wanted something in the in the $6 billion range. And now we're talking maybe about a $1 billion or less range. And I do think Wait, that, see, that's the problem is that I could never talk numbers with Bernie Sanders because I always said the wrong thing. No, it's his fault. He, You know why it's his fault? Because he's always <laughs> saying millionaires and billionaires as if those millionaires. Are, that's off by a factor of a thousand people. This is we, why people there are trillionaires out there now it's a lot of money it's a lot of money sorry go on so we're talking about a sixth of the size of what it otherwise would have been if bernie sanders were writing it with his own pen and then had his own will out there so you know i think what we're talking about here is is something much smaller obviously it's something that cinema and mansion are going to have to agree with they're the sort of problem children at the moment shall we call them and i think you know mansion will admit that he has moved the goalpost given that what we're seeing in ukraine given the, the price of gas at, at uh, the gas stations i think that he has moved the goalpost in terms of what he wants to see in terms of climate action which now includes energy relief at the pump and so do I think that they're going to be able to pull something together that's going to be very small? Yes. I mean, I think on prescription drug side of things, the very smallest possible piece would be potentially to deal with the insulin price issue, which is now a bipartisan discussion, but I think would end up being thrown into a, a end of year or end of fiscal year package. You know, the energy environment piece is complicated now by what Manchin is going to demand and the progressives I think are not gonna like what he has to put out there. So it, I think that moves us a little further away from this coming together in an easy way. And then there are still you know, priorities like childcare 
that, you know, obviously the pandemic unearthed a lot of discussion about this, but it seems that that is falling off of the list of things that will be included in that package, much to the chagrin of lots of us who have children and who've seen how challenging it is to, to get kids care during this time. So yeah, I think we've got a, a tough challenge ahead of us, but if I were to see one coming together, it will be a demand, I think, from the, the senators who are, are up for re-election, who need to go back to their states with something else to say that you know Biden and the Democrats have accomplished something. And so it's going to be a challenge. But I do think that progressives are going to come around to it. They realize that letting the infrastructure package go last year was their leverage. And unfortunately, it's gone. And, and now they're going to have to take whatever the market can bear in the Senate. And, and that'll be a, a much smaller package than what they wanted. You know, the, the, the Senate is vaunted as the upper chamber, a place where relationships matter, where there's still some sense that you can get on, you know, go on the floor and, and, and beat each other up, but that in the back rooms, there's still some comedy, there's still cocktails, there's still lunch happening that the only, you know, the way, the way things get done there is relationships. And last week, Ro Khanna, noted California House progressive, gave an interview to Politico in which he said that President Biden never wanted to have Senator Manchin and me, no, and Senator Sanders together in the same room. He said, look, when we were discussing the Build Back Better, I said, Mr. President, why don't you just get Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin in the room, hammer this out. You don't need all these conversations. Just cut the deal. And whatever those guys agree with, that'll be the roadmap. And my 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 dear friend and former colleague, Peter Welch says- And former guest on this show. And former guest, who, who is now, by the way, running for the U.S. Senate in Vermont and knows a little bit about Brother Bernie, says what Rose asking for is homicide to put them in a room. So first of all, who would you bet on in that boxing match? And uh, probably it's worldwide wrestling, or maybe it's full contact uh, kickboxing, but more seriously, in 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 when you were last on our show, you said that Senator Sanders is actually a much better inside player than people realize. Yeah, you don't get to be mayor and congressman and senator without understanding how to play inside ball. Okay. Inside ball is what I grew up on, stick ball mostly. So do you think that part of the issue in the disintegration of Build Back Better was just failure to build relationships in the Senate? You know, I'd, I'd never bet against Bernie Sanders. He is, he's a formidable person when you put him behind closed doors. And honestly, you know, I think that that he and Manchin do have the ability to have conversations. And, uh, you know, in the past, I've watched Senator Sanders and, uh, you know, I've, I've watched him with some other folks trying to negotiate some big deals, you know, in the, in the past. So he, he can be, he can be a formidable person on that front. I think putting them in the room right now is really difficult. I think to, if you, if you gave them some parameters and asked them to hash out the details, I think that that would be a really important 
conversation. And I think it actually could bear some fruit. I think to put them in the room when the contours are so amorphous right now, and even what the potential for a deal is to come together and what it includes and what it won't include. I think they're on such different sides of the planet right now that to have them in that conversation together would be extremely difficult and probably not productive. So I think that you know if, if it were coming down to the small pieces of brass tacks and, and how you get a deal cut and you know which pieces uh, can come and go in in a smaller scope, I think he could be very effective in that kind of a discussion. And I was trying to recall it was John McCain that he was negotiating a deal with on veterans policy several years back. And, you know, he joked that when he's the calmest guy in the room, you should probably be concerned. But I think it was an interesting time for some big personalities to, to get into a room and have those discussions. And I think, you know, you're seeing someone, you're seeing that kind of happening in, in other ways. So yeah, would it have worked several months ago? Maybe not. Would they, you know, if given a very small scope to negotiate within, could they be impactful and effective? I think they could. You know, it's it's sort of a trope, including in the musical Hamilton, that no one really knows how the sausage is made and no one wants to know how the sausage is made. You don't want to know what's going in there. And and I, I sort of want to pick up, though, on your last description there, because it's really interesting to me, because I actually kind of think that people do want to know how the sausage is made. And you you have actually been just to pick up on Hamilton again, in the room where it happened, as you set up the parameters, as you say, for these kinds of negotiations, I mean, one of the things that staffers do is they will reach out to one another behind the scenes because staffers can sometimes have even better kind of more candid conversations and relationships because they're not on the floor, they're not on camera. So as a chief of staff to someone like Bernie Sanders, you could call one of your counterparts and say, hey, look, I'm gonna have, Bernie in a room with McCain here what, what how are we going to do this like what are they going to cover what are the parameters here so I, just to just to go back to what Rokana was saying he specifically gave this quote where he said we should have compromised with Manchin earlier the president's numbers turned after Afghanistan well that's true and there was a false expectation that we could just roll Manchin and cinema and they'd get in line now obviously that didn't turn out to be the case if that was the expectation that that's not the way it would go. But maybe you can kind of take us inside one of these negotiations. If it were to take place on something like this, how did you or how would you set that up? How would you walk your boss through it in terms of here are the things that we think we can get? Here are the things that we think we can't get. You know, here's what we really you know, suggest that you said, I mean, your boss probably knows these kinds of things, but I, I guess my question is, could you maybe take us through, first of all, you know, is Rokana right? Should, should they have pivoted more quickly and cut a deal faster? And then second of all, how would you have gone about trying to do that if you were still in your old job? I think the first answer is yes. I think that, that you know they did miss an opportunity. I think the longer that it sat out there, the harder it was going to be for for a deal to come together. You know, honestly, what needs to initially happen is there need to be two parties. The two sides actually have to want to come together to have that conversation to get something done. And I honestly don't know 
that mansion or cinema are at the point where they really, really want to get something done. And I don't think they've heard enough from their colleagues who are up, and maybe that's a question of the, their relationships, that what they need going into this reelect that's going to be acceptable to mansion and cinema who, you know, arguably have different kinds of districts and they have different sorts of pressures. So as a threshold matter, you actually have to have two people that want to get something done. So Bernie was looking for a dance partner on veterans issues for a long time with the, the then chairman of, of the committee in the Senate and just didn't find one. And so he went out and found a dance partner. He found McCain and they are having conversation. They were having conversations about how to, to get that, you know, skin that cat. And so I think that the issue is, you know, get, get mansion to the table, really wanting to get something done. So that's a threshold issue. But I do think that if you're, if you're able to look at what mansion has put on the table in December, which I think is pretty much dead, and then look at the new places where he has moved the, the goalposts a little bit, you know, I think there's plenty of money that cinema has agreed. And that's where her, you know, very big objections have been as to where the pay for has come for come from, you know, there's plenty of money on the table, as I read it to pay for a smaller package in the, the trillion dollar range, you know, it's just it's going to be a matter of, of getting Manchin to really get to the table with somebody Now, is is Bernie probably that person Bernie's lobbed a couple of couple of you know hand grenades into West Virginia at Manchin that may have poisoned that relationship a little bit. So maybe he's not the right person to do that. However, I do think that it's important for him to be um, signed off on this because I do think that the progressives in the House are going to look to him to, you know, now that the progressives in the House are basically saying, send us anything because otherwise we're getting nothing. You know, we're at a point where, you know, Bernie's voice is really important and for him to be signed off on it, I think is going to be a really important part of getting this across the finish line. Oh, that's interesting. So sometimes your best strategic position is to hang back and kind of work behind the scenes, but to send someone else to the table. Yeah. And I, you know, I think in this case where there is sort of a little bit of personal, you know, people have been in each other's business a little bit. And, and when, when there's no negotiating table, unfortunately, what we do in politics these days, particularly, is we fight it out in the press and we fight it out in the media. So, you know, Bernie putting a, you know, an op-ed in, in paper in, in Manchin's backyard may not have made him want to come to the table. Yes, that is not a shot across the nose. That is a shot up it. We call it a Bernie bomb. And, and that's all, okay? It's a birdie. And, you if see, he and if he can't handle it, well, maybe he should find another job. I only blame myself here because it uh, for, for longtime listeners, you know that actually Paul, Paul does a pretty darn good Bernie impression. And it was just, it's like, you know, if you have a gambling addict, you're not going to take them to the casino. And just, Michael, you're just, I, I think it, it's just too much. <laughs> right, exactly. Although, um, Boy, I am having is. slight flashbacks. I am. I got to be honest. <laughs> well, listen, let, let, so let's bring it back. Let's bring it back full circle. Are things working in Washington? I mean, all we hear about are angry voters, Dems in disarray, dejected progressives. Uh, on the other hand, Congress is actually passing meaningful legislation. We got Katanji Brown Jackson onto the Supreme Court. The economy, although people feel lousy is booming. We've sort of, you know, masks are in a lot of places and most places on COVID. We've brought our NATO allies together. We've kept them together in the face of this horrific, horrific Russian aggression uh, and brutality in, in, in the Ukraine. So, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to talk to somebody, Michaeline, like you, who's completely plugged in. 
behind the scenes, do, do, do folks feel, and by folks, I mean the people you worked with, do, do, is there a sense that things are fundamental working? Is there a sense that we're back to some kind of pre-Trump normal disagreeable discourse? Or are we dealing with a fundamentally broken set of institutions that were designed at a time when none of the pressures of today in terms of media and news cycle and the rapidity of information and the digital world were present and they're just fundamentally broken and it's not working. What's, what's a poor observer to think? Yeah, you've put so much out there on the table that is is definitely part of what we're looking at here. I, you know, I do think that there are times when this is working. There are very concerted efforts to address real issues that aren't sexy, that don't get people's attention and, and move them forward and, and pass them. So I think people are having real discussions. I think there are people of goodwill on both sides of the aisle. You'd be surprised at, as, as, as Matt said, how the friendships on the staff level across the aisle do exist. And even some some friendships, you know, of the, of the members who you know kick the kick the daylights out of each other on the floor, but then come together and actually have conversations with each other. So I think there's reason to be hopeful, but I do think we're in a very very different time than we've ever been in. And you know, when I first came to the Hill as an intern in the '90s, working for Ted Kennedy, that was that was a very different time where people really did stay in Washington. Their families were here, their friendships were here. It was it was a very different very different time and obviously a very entrenched democratic majority at that time. We're in a, every election matters because the Senate and this house are so evenly split. And so it's, it's really difficult to tackle the big issues because fundamentally the parties don't agree on what the big issues are and whatever plays in their primaries doesn't play in on the other side of the aisle. So, you know, I, I think we've got a real challenging um, time ahead of us, but I do think that there uh, is reason for hope when we do look at folks coming together to, to try to pass, you know, infrastructure legislation and, and COVID packages that could potentially come together. You know, I, I think it's working as well as it can, uh, which is to say not great, but it's, it's not completely fallen apart and uh, it's not sort of scorched earth yet. However, I think if we get to the point where we start talking about getting rid of the filibuster, you know, then, 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 we're, then we're heading down a path that's going to be really, really hard for people to come across the aisle on. So, so let me that's just, interesting, uh, hang on, I just wanted to, I, I sort of want to reframe it or, or reintroduce the question about Trump post-Trump, because mm-hmm. Biden came into office with the promise of cooling cooling the fires, of bringing people back to some sense of of a different kind of Senate. He had been in the Senate forever. He was a trusted friend. He he was able to cross the aisle. Has Has it worked? Has it worked a little? Has it worked as much as everybody hoped? Has it not worked? And is it different now than it was with the great orange Cheeto lying his way through the American psyche. It's absolutely different. <laughs> but I would say that, you know, when when Biden is able to be Biden and to go in and, and cut deals and not be sort of as managed by his his folks as he seems to be, he's very effective. I think that there's a, a lot of push and pull. Some of it is political because 
you know, we are in this divided time where each election means the difference between having the majority and not. And so, you know, sometimes things that would make the best policy sense, which is where I think Biden comes down, he really wants to solve problems, sometimes aren't the best political outcomes for folks. And sometimes it's better to have those things to fight about during an election than it is to actually get you know, a slice or a half a loaf. And I think Biden is someone who wants to, to make progress in as much as he can, but it, it's been a very, it's a challenging, challenging time, but it is better than it was. Well, it does remind me to what, a little bit of what you were saying earlier, sort of at the top of the show and that, you know, about sort of the disconnect between all of the expectations, especially the progressives had coming into this administration and this session of Congress and the reality, which of course, that reminds me of what Mario Cuomo said, which is we campaign in poetry and we govern in prose. And it really seems from everything you're saying and your ability to sort of rattle off the list of, have you looked at what the Senate's gotten done? It does seem like we, we are still able to govern in prose. We are getting a lot of the gears, the cogs and gears running. And the other thing you're saying right now is there is a definite difference in tone. We don't have this this sense that there's this volatile lunatic um, at the top of the administration and the entire tone of, of what is going on behind the scenes for people like you who really make the Senate run, make it work, that that really is fundamentally different. That strikes me as very, very good news because we get super ginned up, especially on social media about what I'm calling the poetry here, but is really just like, you know, the rhetoric that we throw around for pure political and election purposes. And the reality that that you're providing here is, no, actually the gears are still running. We're still, we're still producing law and policy that matters, that makes people's lives better off. Democrats are actually getting stuff done that people care about. You're just not going to read about it in the newspaper because it ain't poetry. Yeah, the challenge is for Democrats is turning that prose into some kind of poetry, turning that into something that people can latch on to. And it's much easier to be, uh, you know, to speak in poetry when you're being aspirational. And, you know, it wasn't Bernie's shining personality that got us talking about big issues, big things like Medicare for all and dreaming big. It was it was a little bit of poetry. And, you know, his is rougher than maybe some others, but it it spoke to the hearts of people because it really tuned into what people were thinking about. And I I think it's a real challenge for Democrats to take what we've done and and talk about it in a way that's meaningful for people. And then to to let people know that there are consequences for elections, because what's going to happen if we end up with, you know, a divided, you know, House and Senate, which we likely will, it's going to be much, much harder to to get these things done. And, And those middle of the road policies that you know, that matter, the small things will get done, but the, the big visionary pieces that I think Biden came in with are, are just going to have a really hard time moving somewhere. And that opportunity has been a little bit missed. Well, we're many things as a party is not one of them, but you are a very clear enunciator, describer, and explainer of everything going on behind the scenes. And Michael, we really appreciate having you on Beyond Politics. Once again, it's it's an absolute treat for us. So I'm going to have to sign off for us right there. On behalf of Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Politics. <laughs>